the saints as that time of the incarnation of the Lord arrived, how they were continuing to look for this promised one that we spoke about. But before we get too far into it, let's open up with a word of prayer in just a moment. Let's just settle our minds in prayer. Lord, we come before you knowing we are always before you in our quiet times, in our busy times, in our trying times, and in our times of just sweet communion with you. And we just praise you for all of that, Lord, that you use it all for the good of those that love you. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to open up your truth this morning, to gaze into these truths that have been so beautifully preserved and presented to us from eternity's past. And Lord, I just pray that we would use this time to adhere these truths to our hearts and to just grow in our love for you, our trust in you, and our anticipation of you. And Lord, we just lift all these things up and so much more in your ever-precious name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to just kind of skip through a little bit from last week. We had a little bit left over, and then we have a lot in the study that we won't be able to get to today. Uh, but I, I always like to be able to kind of put on paper uh, for those of you that would want to take it home and maybe absorb it and unpack it. There's a lot to be unpacked. But I want to just jump right into where we left off last week with kind of the outline of Zechariah 14. And as you recall, where we're coming from is this flow throughout Genesis right on up into the last book of the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament uh, where we find Malachi and Zechariah. And in Zechariah 14, we see this extraordinary outline of what is yet to come 400 years before the first piece of that arrives, which is the advent of the one, the Messiah. Um, so let me just walk quickly through this Zechariah passage and just kind of frame your mind to the fact that this is the last of God's revelation to the people of Israel for 400 years. His voice through the prophets stopped. And this is what they had to feast on, <laughs> right? And I want to just foreshadow, as we move into the, we see, begin to see a glimmer of the saints that were alive at the time of Christ's birth, we will clearly see they were looking right back to these scriptures faithfully, waiting for that one that we talked about all throughout the study, this promised one, 
all the way back to Genesis 3.15. So in Zechariah 14.1 and 2, just a few things to draw out of this. It says, behold, a day is coming for the Lord. I, he says, verse 2, will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. I will do it. This is one of those passages that it's good to just land it squarely in Romans 8.28, right? Because God uses this for good. He uses it to bring Israel to himself. But it literally takes thousands of years for that to take place. In the manner that he's going to present it here. And you see down in verse 3 through 5, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. So he brings the nations upon Israel, and he uses that as the means by which he's going to come and defend Israel, because God is God, and he does as he pleases, and everything he does is right and purposeful. But it's stunning to think about that, right? Just those two sections of this revelation. And Israel reads these. The, the Israel looks at these and says, this is us. Imagine that, right? The Lord is going to bring the nations upon us, and then he's going to defend us. And this was all part of what was in the makeup of their minds. And you see it squarely when the Lord begins his ministry, as we'll take a look at this morning. He says in verse 4 of Zechariah 14, on page 4 of our first study, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And what he foreshadows is what he said in Acts 1.11. The angel communicated after the Lord had ascended, why are you looking up? He's going to return exactly the same way he departed. And it's foretold here in Zechariah. And then in verse 6 through 11, for those of you whose hearts have been so beautifully touched, I know mine is, by John 7, 37 and 38, in the midst of that Feast of the Tabernacles, we see it foreshadowed right here in Zechariah 14, 6 and 11. And even the screaming of the Lord in John 7, 37 and 38 is a foreshadowing of what is yet to come in the millennial reign. Zechariah says in verse 14, 8, On the, that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. And in a spiritual sense, it certainly did with the Lord. And in a very literal sense, it will during the millennial reign. So you see again how he's just connecting all these touch points throughout history and still pointing to a time that lies ahead of us. And it's all packed into this amazing passage in Zechariah 14. We know its future because it says in verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And then it ends in verse 11, Shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And that day has clearly not come on both fronts, right? But I want to just transition from our last week's study, particularly with the prophecy of the resuming of the Feast of the Booths and the Passover 
right? And you see that in Isaiah 45, 20 through 23. I want to draw your attention to what Isaiah is told in verse 20 of Isaiah 45. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together and listen to the, you survivors of the nations. I want you to pay careful attention to that from that Isaiah passage. Because what you then find, he says in verse 23, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in a righteousness, in righteousness, a word that shall not return. And that word is to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Right? Again, a time we have never seen that Isaiah foretells into the future. And Zechariah picks that up in verse 16 through 21. In verse 16 of Zechariah 14, Zechariah says this, Then everyone who what? Survives of all the nations. Here they are again. Who are these that survive of all the nations? And there are some that believe it's only believers. There are some that believe that there's a mixture of people that flow into the kingdom. Um, scripture is, is not clear on that, but there's a lot that allow you to see it both ways, right? But either way, it says, it refers to those who survive of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. So when is that? That is the future tribulation period, the second half after the period of false peace. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year, continuing to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths was the celebration that occurred before the Passover when all of Israel would come back to Jerusalem and there wouldn't be room. So they would build tabernacles and they would dwell amongst one another as they were leading up to the Passover. And that is precisely what is reinstituted as the Lord ushers in the millennial reign. This Feast of Booths, this Feast of Tabernacle, tabernacling with God. And there's a warning in there that tells you there's still going to be rebellion going on in verse 17 of Zechariah 14. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Right? There's consequences. There's, a, there's clearly rebellion that's going on. And there's clearly consequences from the Lord himself, which reveal an awful lot about the heart of man. Does it not? To imagine the Lord reigning in Jerusalem the whole world completely restored to his reign, and yet you have pockets of people who simply still continue to rebel against him. Right? That's what Zechariah is revealing here. And all will be holy to the Lord, as we see in verse 20. And verse 21 gives us a little bit of an insight into Ezekiel 45, which we study with David. Verse 21 of Zechariah 14 says, And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat. That is the restart of the Passover. A very 
ceremony that was obsoleted by Christ on the night of his death. The temple that is the means by which all that can take place was destroyed in 70 AD and is required with all of its temple operations in order to resume the Passover. Right down to the red heifer that they can't find, which can only have two or three hairs in order to qualify as the red heifer. They can't find one. They're going to find one. <laughs> they're going to rebuild the temple and they're going to restart the Passover all under the precise oversight of the Lord and David, the prince, right? As we learn in Ezekiel. Which Ezekiel alludes to in verse 45, or chapter 45, 21. And this is our transition point into today's, tonight's, today's study. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of the Passover. And this entire section of Ezekiel is future. If you go back into the study, David, this entire section is describing the millennial reign of Christ from where this passage comes from. Ezekiel, you shall celebrate the feast of the pa Passover for seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. And it is with that that God's voice through the prophets stops. That's what he leaves them with for 400 years. Okay. And it's easy to say. That. Israel completely missed it. And I know you've looked at these beautiful people as Christmas comes along and the birth of Christ is celebrated. But I want you to look at them from the Old Testament saints. That remnant who believed the scriptures. They hung to the scriptures. They hung to this promised one. They hung all the way back to Genesis 3.15 that said, there's one who is coming. Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Well, they're still asking, when is he coming? When is he coming? When is he coming? Because what I want you to look at when we look at these beautiful Old Testament saints that are there when Christ is born, I want you to look at their theology. I want you to look at their Christology, words we use. What were they looking for? And how precisely did they describe the very promised one from the Old Testament? And it kind of hit me this morning. Here's the warning for us, for all of us. Do we cling to these scriptures? Do we believe these scriptures? Because what happened was they did not believe the scriptures in general and rewrote God's plan and they were blinded all the way through the very incarnation of Jesus, the Messiah. That's how powerfully blinding the rejection of the script. Ah, that can't be true. I think it'll be like this. That's what they were doing. But look at the theology of these Old Testament saints. So now we're switching to the new study, the new handout part two. And I want you to look at this little 14-ish-year-old saint named Mary. And let's look at what the angels have to say to her in Luke 128. Specifically, verse 32 there on your first page. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him what? The throne of his father, David. 
that's, that draws a sharp line right between everything we've studied and so much more that it's unpacked from those studies. He's the one, is what the angels say. He's the one who's going to sit on the throne of David. Just imagine what a 14-year-old girl had to be thinking who was filled with these prophecies, this promised one, and now coming to realize that he's here and he's in her womb. (laughs) And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And we think about eternity and heaven and all that, but there's a lot packed into that, particularly when it talks about him sitting on David's throne. And I love Mary's response. You see it there in verse 31 through 33. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant, which is in the Greek a female slave. She called herself a female slave of who? Christ. Behold the female slave of the Lord. Let it be to me, this is the point, according to to your word, God. Not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the teachers of the time, not what the vast majority of people believe, but according to what your word says. That's what gave Mary a theology and a Christology that separated her from what appears to be virtually most of the rest of Israel at this time, is it not? And I just want to skip through her beautiful praise my soul magnifies the lord look at verse 47 in god my what who needs a savior a sinner regardless of everything the roman catholic church says about mary mary knew she needed a savior just as much as every other sinner who is convicted by that sin and she knew there was one who was coming that was foretold from all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And now she knows that he is here and is in her womb. And she refers to him rightly as my God, my Savior. That is beautiful theology to a young lady who had to be utterly overwhelmed with what was being told to her. My God, my Savior, his mercy, verse 50 is for those who fear him and from generation to generation and I would argue and a number have argued in beautiful books one in particular where have all the God fears gone will argue that what is wrong with society and what is encroaching horribly into the visible church today is the fact that there is no fear of God there is no awe of God because we've turned the God of the Bible into our little genie in a bottle I want this, I want that, I need this, I need that. Get me out of this trial, get me out of that trial. And it was that God who put us in those trials for his purpose, for his glory, and for our good. (laughs) That's what these saints realized when they offer up these beautiful, beautiful praises to the Lord. Down in verse 54, she says, He has helped his servant Israel his slave Israel, in remembrance of his mercy. And this is so key. This was what threads us right back to the Old Testament fathers. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to who? 
Remember the offspring in Genesis 3.15, the two offsprings? And to his offspring forever. And then we see Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. Let's look at his theology a bit. It says in verse 68, Blessed be the God, excuse me, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and what? Redeemed his people. They knew he was the one. That's the point. They knew he was the one, and they were so rare. They were like precious gems buried in the thick fog of Israel. These people were. He has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. They knew their scriptures and they believed their scriptures and therefore they saw the Messiah exactly who he said he was when the whole nation missed him and killed him. Verse 72, to remember his holy covenant, this new covenant that they see, which is still very much a future covenant for Israel. That we might serve him without fear, just like Zechariah foretold. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, which he did, in the forgiveness of their sins, which he was. The substitute. He was the ram in the thicket of Abraham and Isaac and the knife. He was the blood of the Passover that had been instituted, right? And Zechariah understood that beautifully. Let's skip down to Simeon and Anna there in bullet number six. Let's look at Simeon for just a minute. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for what? The consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was waiting for the one. And the Holy Spirit was on him, saying, he's here. The one you've been reading, the one you've been studying, the one you've been longing for, the one you've been hoping for, he's here. And he's about to walk into your shift <laughs> in the temple. been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Boy, what a visit that must have been, huh? Because somewhere between the time of Christ's birth and the time of his showing up, he received directly from the Holy Spirit, he's here and he's coming to see you before you die. And what does he say in verse 28? Just look at, just look at the heart of this sweet, sweet, Man, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He had no peace. Where is he? Where is he coming? When is he coming? According to what? See how they keep going back to the same thing? Is that not a strong exhortation for us? How many are rewriting the scriptures today? Because it's unbelievable. Isn't everything God does along this line unbelievable? 
according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He literally sees him, and he's holding him in his hand as a newborn baby. And to give you some idea of the insight that this man had, look at what he says to Mary. And think about Mary, who's trying to absorb the joy of a brand new baby, the hardship that she's endured up to this point, how overwhelmed she is to have the Messiah. And Simeon says this, verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Here we are. There's our light. There we are. And for glory to your people Israel, two separate and distinct constituencies, aren't they? How Simeon sees them, rightly, the Gentiles, this church age, Israel, yet to come. But look at verse 34 and how this must have shook Mary. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That alone would shake you, wouldn't it, as a brand new mom? And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. That had to be an incredibly sobering moment. When the gravity of Isaiah 53, can you imagine hearing that from Simeon? And then all of a sudden Isaiah 53 just floods into your heart. And it kind of goes, I see it. The suffering servant. Here he is. This little baby. And they knew it because of all that the Old Testament had foretold of the promised one. What's it say about God's promises? <laughs> he keeps them. And let me just say, if there's no future for Israel in the kingdom, how on earth can you reconcile the promises he's made to Israel and not see him as a God who does not keep his promises? And that is what these people are clinging to, is it not? And it's what the Lord said about, I will fulfill this in the kingdom when all of it is resumed. Anna, let's just jump down to the verse 38. And you know, I think, a little bit about Anna, but she devoted her entire life after her husband of seven years died to the temple, day and night, waiting for her Lord. And she walked up in verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him, of him to all who were waiting for what? The redemption of Jerusalem. He's here. He's here. Simeon had him in his hands today. He's here. Faithful saint. And I want to just draw our attention to Philip and Nathaniel. As Jesus had gone to Galilee, he found Philip and said to him, follow me, and Philip just followed him. But I want you to pay attention to what Philip said to Nathanael and how important and how central the scriptures were to this obscure, unknown man named Philip who we know very little about still. 
He said to him, to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Everything we've studied, Nathanael, everything we've read about in our scriptures, everything, he's here. And as skeptical as they would, they were, and they became, they believed that single thread. And the Spirit of the Lord just kept building on it that was in them. And I don't want to go through all this in too much detail, but I want to just skip along and you can go back. But look at the forerunner that we learned from Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43. This is an extract from One Perfect Life. If you don't know it, it is work of Dr. MacArthur and a, I think a team full of people that took all four Gospels and they harmonized them as has been done in the past. But it's just a beautiful, beautiful resource because it keeps you from having to skip across all the different Gospels and it harmonizes them for you. And you get a much more complete picture. But let me just look at this extract on John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. We skip down as it is written in the prophets. There it is again, pointing right back to Malachi, pointing right back to Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And anybody who knew and believed their Old Testament scriptures and prophecy immediately understood where that passage was coming from and who it was pointing to. And that here he is now. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. And in the next section, you see Jesus immediately making these connections and the confrontation that we see after the first cleansing of the temple, we see him meeting with Nicodemus at night. And he says in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who is the we in the hour? He gives us a bit of a clue when he jumps down to verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's a connection right back to the Old Testament prophets. Our testimony, the Lord says, is true. Why don't you believe it? And he points to his cross all the way back to Nicodemus' encounter. With verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, which is everything the scriptures foretold. Jesus told the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and made this precise connection for her right back to Zechariah and Isaiah. And he would have given you what? The living water which will flow out of Jerusalem during the millennial reign, which is symbolic of life. He 
He returned to Nazareth, and he stood up to read, and he, he opened up Isaiah, and he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set a liberty at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said, This now has been fulfilled. And it was their great desire to throw him off a cliff. Jump down to the second section on page 10. And I want to come back to the cups because I think you can look at them fine as multiple cups or one cup that has a commingling of a lot of stuff in it because there's a lot of cups referenced and a lot of drinking of those cups by different constituencies that I'm going to try to show you coming back to the cup in the kingdom because this is all carefully intertwined and we would spend a month of these Sundays trying to unpack that but I've just tried to give you a plumb line to follow but look at the hatred of uh, that would produce the suffering of the servant which directly directly points to one of these cups We see in Matthew 12, 22, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and the people were amazed and said, and this is the blinding power of pride and somehow inverting the God whom we should fear and turning him into the God who is here to serve us and allow us to rewrite whatever we think he's doing. And if that doesn't fit with what we think he should be doing, we will reject him, just like these people do right here. Look what happens in verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? They knew enough to know Boy, things are starting to really look a lot like the guy that's been talked about, this promised one, isn't he? And look at the power of false teachers and false religion and a faith that is not grounded in the scriptures. Look at what they say, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And it just makes me think about when the entire crowd who exalted Christ in the entry that week also shouted, crucify him. Because the leaders were and everybody else was except for these beautiful little saints who believe the scriptures in the face of all of that. Jesus, in one of the most scathing encounters in John 8, said in verse 21, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come, because the promised one who was promised to suffer and be pierced through is the only means by which 
Anyone can be saved. And if you reject that one, you will die in your sins. That was Jesus' evangelism to these people because he was continuing to proclaim the truth. If you reject me as you are doing as you speak, you will die in your sin. And in a very real sense, the one sin that ultimately condemns all of our sins is the sin that rejects Christ for the forgiveness of that life of sin. Do you see that? And that's what Jesus was telling these people. And here we see the offsprings from Genesis 3.15. You are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. And I want you to pay attention to this section, but I need to move to section three. And I want you to see this encounter that precedes the upper room in the institution of the Lord's Supper and then the encounter that follows that in the garden where the Lord speaks again. And in both cases, right sandwiched, right on the outside of the institution of the Lord's table and the cup that we've read about last week, we see more cups or the same cup commingled with a lot of other elements, okay? So there on page... 11, as we see the journey to Jerusalem, Jesus reveals the cup that we too will participate in. Truly the cup that he drank, or a portion of the cup that he drank. And we see it in a very distracting set of texts. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and the other on the left. Where? In your kingdom. The kingdom. The real kingdom. I want my sons to sit on your right and your left, right? Jump down to Jesus' response where he says, you do not know what you ask. And then he asks him a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And if that was all we had, most of us would say, no way, because the cup you're gonna drink, Lord, is the cup of divine wrath that only you were qualified for because you were the sinless one. We are not qualified to drink that cup and have it mean anything. Only Jesus could. But look at what he says. There is more to this cup that involves those who love Christ. And we're always so distracted by, how could they do that? Jesus just told them he's going to die. And this is what they want to talk about. But look at what is at the heart of this passage. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And be baptized with the baptism that I am, a, I am baptized with. And they said to him, what? We are able. Mercy they were. They thought much more of themselves than they should have, didn't they? Note to ourselves. 
with caution. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup. And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left, that is prepared by my Father and my Father's business alone. But you will drink from my cup. And what cup was he talking about? Look at verse 18 of John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me and before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept what? My word. Always comes back to what we do with the scriptures we've been given. Because that's where truth is. They will also keep yours because it is the work of the Holy Spirit bringing to us those words. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Jump down to C. We find our Lord in Gethsemane, and we know the story. The men fall asleep. It's because they were, look at the top of page 12. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful. He fell on his face. He asked that the hour might pass. We get all caught up in the fact that the men were sleeping, but the scriptures tell us they were sleeping because of sorrow. Have you ever just wept so hard, so long, you're just wrung out? These men were in an utter state of distress. And sleep is often an escape from that, and that's often what we do, and it's very much what these men were doing, trying to escape what was just unimaginable to them. And Jesus says a second time, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And that cup is surely the cup that is filled with the hatred of a world who just wants him dead and they're going to make sure it happens. And it is surely filled with the divine wrath of God due upon every one of us that have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He drank the divine wrath for us. And the cup that we continue to drink from is the cup of hatred towards God. And the faithful saint had better be prepared to drink from that cup, says the Lord. All part of the preparation. And boy, were they about to experience the bitterness of not drinking the cup because they rejected, denied, and scattered, right? I wanna just draw your attention and then we'll wind down. There are two more cups mentioned and they're in the book of Revelation. 
And neither Jesus drinks them, nor we drink them. But it is the cup of divine wrath. It is the cup of divine wrath against the system that was put together by Satan that fueled the unbelieving hearts of unbelievers to reject Christ. And they will drink that cup for eternity. The same cup, divine wrath. And you see that in the study. I would draw your attention to it and reflection on it. And I just want to end again where we started at the very end of the handout. Back in the upper room, when he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And I want you to look at the way the book of Acts begins, and then we'll... we'll fascinating to me. The Lord has been crucified. He came out of the tomb. And now for the last days he's on this earth. What's he doing? Fascinating. Look at Acts 1, 1 through 3. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and doing what? Speaking about the kingdom for 40 days. What a class that had to be. For 40 days, speaking about this kingdom comes thy will be done and that's when he was taken up the angel said why are you looking up he's coming right back here just like he said he would just like we see in Zechariah just like we see in so many other places Ezekiel just like we see in Revelation and the question is the same do we believe the scriptures or does it is it so unbelievable we're going to rewrite it into something that makes a little more sense to us and miss everything that is going to occur between now and then right so i would just encourage you to continue to unpack this whole beautiful theme that flows through the scriptures of this promised one the cup and the kingdom because two-thirds approximately of all that is prophesied in the Bible is yet to be fulfilled. Now there's a comment. Huh? Thank you guys. David will be back next week and we'll resume with our study of Daniel.